0: Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guests today are Matt Barber and Joel Dalb. Matt and Joel are the owners of Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, a Bozeman based fly rod company known for its unyielding commitment to quality, craftsmanship, and enduring performance. The duo purchased the company in early 2017 from Tom Morgan, a fly fishing legend who, along with his wife Jerry, built the company into one of the world's most unique and renowned rod builders. Rather than focus on the latest fads or selling high volumes of products, Tom was dedicated solely to building the highest quality rod, one that could be passed on from generation to generation, decade after decade. You may be surprised to learn that Matt and Joel are not fly fishing industry veterans. Their previous careers were in education and medical device sales. But when Tom Morgan decided to sell the company, Matt and Joel's passion for fly fishing, their willingness to learn from the best, and their commitment to continuing the company's legacy allowed them to stand out from the crowd of competing buyers. To everyone's dismay, Tom passed away unexpectedly soon after the sale of the company, but only after imparting his wisdom, craftsmanship secrets, and high standards onto Matt and Joel. Building on Tom and Jerry's rock-solid foundation, the company is now entering its next phase, and the future has never looked brighter. Matt and Joel were in Denver for the annual fly fishing show, so we met up to chat about the company and their journey into fly fishing entrepreneurship. We talked at length about Tom and his laser-like focus on quality, and how he was willing to snap a rod in half if it did not meet his high standards. We chatted about the secret to making these rides, which mostly boils down to being able to work harder than anyone else. We talked about Tom's unique partnership with his wife, Jerry, and how the couple was able to transfer decades of knowledge and experience to Matt and Joel. We discussed the company's unique business model and how it flies in the face of most mainstream NBA business theories. And as usual, we discussed favorite books, films, crazy outdoor experiences, and plenty more. This was a very fun conversation. I'm excited to watch the company continue to grow and thrive under Matt and Joel's ownership. Be sure to check out the episode notes for everything we discuss and follow Tom Morgan Rod Smith on Instagram and other social media. There's links to everything in the notes. Hope you enjoy. When you guys meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question?
1: I think luckily with this job I'm I'm able to say I build custom fly rods. Yeah. you know there's no dancing around it. It's it's a it's a good answer to be able to
0: have. Mm-hmm. And so I want to dig into the company. I want to dig into life in Bozeman, all that. But you guys have very unique backgrounds. You're you didn't you weren't born into this business. It's not a family business. You guys are, came from different careers to do this. So can you talk a little bit about how you ended up doing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, or background wise, I. Uh, I was working as a middle school, the head of a small private middle school for, for the last five years and 17 years there as a teacher, so I really came out of education, and fly fishing is the thing I did when I was feeling stressed, and that's uh, how I got away from things.
2: Yeah, I think we both grew up fishing, Yeah, um, and I think I stopped fishing kind of in college, just didn't really start fishing, and met Matt through kind of a few, some mutual friends in Denver, and they, Matt and a friend of ours actually got, got me fishing again. So we started fishing. When I met Matt, he was only a dry fly fisherman Uh on the East Coast. He wouldn't (laughs) nymph. I know (laughs) He wouldn't put anything below the surface (laughs) of the river. Um, And I think uh, I had kind of had a variety of jobs. I spent the last 13 years in medical device sales with spine uh, spine surgeons. Um, So kind of different. But I did actually end up doing a lot of education and training in that role as well. So I think Matt and I both kind of come from an education background. Um, and I, I sort of knew um, about Tom Morgan just because of his legacy at Winston. Yep. So I, I'd always fish Winston rods. I always beat up Matt and our other friends. got by buy a green rod. <laughs> you know, like I kind of knew him from that and knew obliquely from a surgeon customer of ours about Tom Morgan Rodsmiths.
0: Got it. And mm-hmm. so how did you guys... How did you end up acquiring this business? Or, or I think yeah. a better, better way to go into this is let's talk a little bit about Tom Morgan Ridesmiths because it's one of the most unique fly fishing companies that I know of. Yeah. And I'm, a, I'm definitely a fly fisherman, but I'm not 100% obsessed. But even I know about it um, mm-hmm. and how unique it is. So can you guys just give a little overview about that company before we dig any deeper? Yeah.
1: Uh, so Tom grew up in Ennis, and um, he grew up, his parents owned the El Western Hotel, And about age 12, he started guiding on Odell Creek and, uh, people from out of state would request this teenager to take him out fishing in Montana. And he just became passionate about fly fishing and owned a tackle shop in Ennis and, uh, um decided he was gonna purchase winston and in uh, 1973 he purchased winston in san francisco oh wow so he moved his family out to san francisco um it's been amazing we've been out to san francisco a little bit now that we've owned the company i I guess i didn't realize it was such a fly fishing kind of hotbed there's a real real community of fly fishermen historic community of fly fishermen there Mm -hmm. um the golden gate angling casting club is you know just an amazing place but uh um, so Tom owned that, and then he uh, decided to bring it back to Montana. So that's when he moved it to Twin Bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, was it three years later? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he brought it back to Twin Bridges mm-hmm. and uh, ran Winston there and, and uh, had it till 1991. Um, and so most people, when we ta- talk about Tom Morgan Rodsmith, we, we start with Winston because that's a thing that a lot of people have heard of. Sure. Um, after that, he... Uh, he kind of was helping out with the transition for David Andachi and and moving things over for for him taking ownership of Winston. And uh, he started developing, you know, symptoms of MS. And uh, um, he met also his wife, Jerry, at the same time, pretty fortuitous that that they met um, around about that same time. And, And they started discussing ways that as he knew he would start losing use of his legs and then his arms and and you know become confined to a wheelchair what could they do together for work um that would make sense and and, uh the rod building thing was something that made sense to them so about 20 years ago uh they built a home shop and uh started from scratch with Tom's designs a lot of a lot of the designs he'd just been cultivating in his mind and uh Jerry, you know, really became the 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 hands that that built those rods. So he had to describe a lot of those processes to her. She had never built a rod before. Wow. Um, and she wasn't a fisherman. Yeah. Really.
2: Yep. And still uh, isn't a fisherman. Have, <laughs> She's yep. a rod maker. Really. Yep. yep. yep.
0: Have you heard um, Have you heard many stories from from her about how that teaching process went? Because that's that's seems. Like, that would be extremely hard to teach yeah, somebody they, that.
1: they tell a great story that I think we all could identify with in terms of a relationship to our spouse, but uh, the very first time they were looking for a tool in one of those red tool chests, and, you know, he was sitting there, and he couldn't get up and go over and get it, and he was telling her... About, you know, trying to find it, and she'd pull out a drawer and just start pulling out random things. Every tool and pick up a tool,
2: had... walk over to him, wrong tool, put it back. Pick up <laughs> a tool, walk over him, and it took better part of a day, right? Yeah, and the day ended with her crying, and they both went to separate ends of the house, and that was just one tool. Wow. And yeah. You know, we've learned, you know, we thought making a fly rod wasn't really this compendium of a thousand steps, but it really is. It's this journey when we make fly rods now, and the way Tom did them, you know, <laughs> and I think it was, I think. You know, We've heard different stories about him and, and why he left Winston or, or, or what happened there, but I think that him, he wanted a perfect fly rod. and he, I think he, he has always wanted a perfect fly rod. That was kind of a journey for him that never really ended. You know, he was always tinkering. He was changing patterns up to just this last year. You know, he was always in this pursuit of making the best thing, and that wasn't the best fly rod. It was every single component and process mm-hmm. in making them was refined. And and there was always room in his head to refine it more. He always was thinking, like, we have an oven to coat blanks or or bake blanks and cure the resins on them. But what if each blank could spin inside a barrel that was spinning inside an oven with multiple vertical heating elements for each blank? You know, like, it wasn't just we can get some heat in an oven and cure a blank, which is what most people do. He was thinking, how far can I go? You know, and you can't do that in a high production environment.
0: No. You know, and I think
2: that's part of the story of him and Winston was he was was had had a long run there and i think that's longer than either either of us have ever been in a job so i get that but he also was constrained by volume and numbers and employees and you know the realities of running a bigger business didn't allow you to say is there a better way for us to make this feral yeah or maybe i I spent a couple months working on this feral design
0: yeah Yeah. (laughs) you
2: can't in those environments and i think for tom the Tom Morgan Rodsmith is really about making as close to the perfect rod as you can, regardless of price, regardless of components, regardless of time. You know, regardless of all those things that constrain you in normal production environments. Yeah, and
0: I want to dig into some of that—the the ideas about the business and how it kind of goes against a lot of mm-hmm. traditional business practices um, or mm-hmm. business thoughts about how you should run a business. But before that, can you just t- talk in detail a little bit about the types of rods you guys make and and the the current customers you have and kind of this loyal cult following that that you guys have.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we make uh, graphite fiberglass and bamboo rods. Um, all of our rods are custom. So part of the business model is we don't sell to retail shops. We don't have a big stock, big inventory of rods. You know, really when you call up and you said like to buy a rod, we start a conversation. We start talking about what water are you fishing? What kind of flies are you fishing? Um, what rods have you enjoyed in the past? And, and, uh, we, we start talking about things like, what kind of handle do you want on that rod? We talk about the real seat wood. You know, We get all of our wood um, from burls, um, and we shape them down, and we turn them on the lathe, and we six coats of hand-rubbed gunstock oil on each one, wow. and then you pick the actual specific piece of wood that we put on your rod. Um, so it's, it's a really great process because I've had people walking through the shop asking us about it, and when I show them y'all you know, have a piece of green masking tape at my workstation there's some last names on it and some notes about what kind of you know real seat hardware they want but I can tell you the name of that person I can tell you the fact that I texted them a picture last week of where their rod was in progress I can tell you a little bit about the special occasion for the rod so it's a it's a really neat connection to something you know and and as a kind of self-proclaimed gearhead I, I own a lot of gear but it's very few pieces of gear that i could tell you the name of the person who built those skis for me or the name of the guy that did the welds on my mountain bike so um our rods are all one-off custom built for each customer uh we build two and four piece graphite rods and then, yeah. and then the bamboo and fiberglass as well
2: mm-hmm. And that kind of goes to Tom's history, too. So he was a fishing guide first. Yeah. You know, different people go different ways. Rod designers come from different backgrounds. Some guys are engineers and scientists Mm -hmm. and materials guys who know about resins and epoxies and graphites and things like that. And Tom was really a fisherman first. And he guided and worked with people fishing and watched what they struggled with and what they did well, how well the tools worked for them. And I think for him, it made more sense to build rods for people as opposed to building a design and putting that design out in the marketplace and saying, I have this... You know, space age super design that's good for everybody. For him, it was more about this guy can't cast more than thirty five feet, so how can I what rod is best for him and how sure. can I get him in position to catch this trout? You know, it was more of a guide's perspective and a fishing perspective. And I think that, you know, Tom picked up the engineering and learned the design and the, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he really started as somebody who was worried about concerned about people being better fishermen sure yeah
0: that what that reminds me of a different type of craftsman is like surfboard shapers i Mm -hmm. love to surf which doesn't really fit in with the old mountain western stuff but it's uh you know you hear about these surfboard shapers who you know make certain surfboards for a certain person and their certain arm length at a certain break Mm -hmm. you know for a certain time of year and and they're expensive but they're the kind of thing that lasts forever and Mm -hmm. there's nothing like them um so, speaking of these, these rides, are are made for individuals. None of them have fancy space age names, correct? Yeah, like, yep. you, you know, you go to any fly, fly ride, fly shop, they're all the rides nowadays, they, it's like you're buying a spaceship because <laughs> the names are so fancy. Yeah. But y'all's are, are not that at all. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, and that's at really the core of another one of Tom's philosophies was we're not out to sell you. If you buy a nine foot five weight from us today, two years from now, that should be the same great rod fish don't change rivers don't change still fishing similar flies if it's a great rod it should last so i think a little bit of it is that in everything beyond fishing but we you know we're in this disposable culture and there's planned obsolescence to everything so the flashy names really represented a brand new model line and then the new flashy name is going to be Two years from now, what replaces that old model line? Exactly. And Tom's philosophy was, if we can tinker with it, if there's a change to be made for the better, we'll do it. But really, if you come back in ten years and cast our nine foot five weight, it should feel a lot like your nine foot five weight, and we don't want to sell you a new nine foot five weight. Yeah. You know. So that's really, um, it's a philosophical piece that we don't need names because that's just the one we make, and it's the best one we make, and mm-hmm. we're not going to try to upsell
0: you a new one in a couple of years. That's really cool and really, really rare. In business in general, but even more nowadays. Um, so, did did he have a like a, a trade secret to building these rods? I'm not going to ask you to reveal yeah. if he did. Is it, is there a trade secret, or is it just is the secret that he is 100 percent committed to quality more than anybody else? I think
2: it's probably more the latter than the former. I mean, when we when we started this process of, of thinking about buying the business and operating it, we talked to a lot of people who gave us some advice about it. Most of them were, "You're crazy." <laughs> don't do it yeah. so i remember one of the guys asked me he said why couldn't one of the employees just go make that rod mm-hmm. why couldn't they just leave quit tomorrow and go make a tom morgan rod and i didn't have a great answer for him i mean the tapers are tom's tapers but tom used to say there are no new tapers you could take a rod go buy it deconstruct it measure every part of it and figure out what the taper of it is and mm-hmm. you know, there's not really a secret there that couldn't be copied but i think you're right i think um i think we've been pretty surprised the extent to which he would pursue quality Mm -hmm. and I think most people are surprised from a component standpoint it's it's like I said it's really the compendium of the parts you know the sum is greater than all the parts you know and and we don't think that there are are, is anybody out there really that's willing to go to that length to create these kind of fly rods Mm -hmm. you know and it's it's interesting it's not like there isn't really a secret sauce I mean the secret sauce is just his commitment kind of his unending commitment and Matt had this conversation with him I mean he used to say, if you couldn't break a rod when well, you're nine tenths of the way done with it and start over, then you know it's not the right company for you. Yeah, and, and that commitment to never sending anything out that isn't the very best you can do. He talked to us about your best work being very, very close—the gap between your best work and your worst work being very, very close. You know, and that was kind of his, you know, his commitment to quality it was exemplified in that idea that there's not a lot of variance; like things are pretty close. And we we have this demo rod right now that. Um, we were having a friend of ours fish with and he brought it in after he was done with it, he's like, This rod's great. And we we're looking at it, we looked at the serial number, it's twenty-two years old. Really? It's a twenty-two-year-old fly rod and it looks great and it fishes great. And you know, the reality is when you make a really high quality product, and there's some other examples of this that we'll talk about later, but I think when you make a really great product, it is in a way sort of timeless. I mean not, mm-hmm. not literally timeless, but in a way it really is a lasting good that you can you can have and work for you and work for your family and your kids and you know. It's kind of this heirloom type of quality is what we really are chasing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that Tom's philosophy, like Matt just kind of said, is that fishing doesn't change so much. I mean, we fish fancier flies now, or we think we know a little bit more about it, but the yep. fish still live in water and eat bugs. Yep. And their brain's the size of a pea. I mean, <laughs> something yep. that worked 25 years ago for our grandpas works for us.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think in any sport, um, you know, there, there comes a point where gear becomes a distraction from kind of the pure aspect of the sport. Like even in my sport of choice is running in the mountains, and you don't need you need good shoes, Mm. and that's really it. And I see people, you know, with fancy some kind of fancy backpack and the fancy shoes and compression socks and a satellite watch that's beaming them all this information. (laughs) And I'm not a good runner, but you know, I'll be passing by them on the trail while they're playing with their watch. (laughs) And um, I feel like being able to kind of cut away a lot of the BS and just get down to the essence of it. That's what Ivan Chouinard, you know, the guy that started Patagonia. He's a business mm-hmm. hero of mine. It seems like y'all share his philosophy in that. Yeah. we and don't Tom, want you to talk to
2: him, but he has, he has some working rods. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, he does. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we certainly think of them a lot in a philosophy of we're not in a sell as much as possible you know, make a a low priced, high volume product, that's not really where we are. And I think they definitely exemplify that model. You know, they did a famous ad a couple years ago that I've always thought about where they it was right around Christmas time, it was like two or three years ago, they put a big full page ad out that said, had an old Patagonia coat on it that said, this year for Christmas, don't buy our stuff. Yep. If you have a coat that works for you, don't buy a new coat. And that idea of actually saying to somebody, don't buy our products, because our products should be good enough to last Sure. It's such a great, powerful, I think, idea to us, you know, that things are, can be timeless. And that we live in this culture, like Matt said, like, what's the new thing? What's the shiny thing? What's the, you know, what's the best thing? Is it the new name that makes it better? I think with, with our products, we just don't feel like there's a need for somebody to buy a brand new thing every two years or three a- years.
1: There's a company out uh, of New Hampshire called Limmer Boots. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I have, yeah. And, you know, you get on a multi-year waiting list to get your, your hiking boots made for you, handmade. And you get you go out there to have the last, you know, molded to your feet. And even then, you're not close to getting it done. Right. And I had a philosophy professor in, in college that had a pair of Limmer Boots, and he talked about it for him, you know, cheesy or not, but he said, you know, it's the way I walk through the world in these boots. You know, is, is it a disposable item? Is it something I just throw away when I'm done? Or do I spend a little more? Do I build a personal connection with the people that are building these boots for me? And then do I wear them for the rest of my life? And if they need to be fixed, I know the people, they know my boot, they're going to do what they need to do to fix it. And I, I, you know, so for him, that was kind of a, you know, symbolic of of the way he wanted to approach things. And when we met Tom, that kind of popped right back into my head, that limber boot model that, um, you know, having a personal relationship with the person that built your rod. So much about fishing, I can tell you some fish stories or I can show you some pictures, but it's much more about the conversations in the drift boat when we're sitting in the eddy or the snow swall starts up or the wind starts coming down or the wildlife we see on the side of the river or the drives to the river or the whiskey at the campsite after the river. And so I, I think the same thing, like you said, gear being a distraction. What I really like about our rods is gear is a, it's a connection. Mm-hmm. It's a story. It's a, you know, it's a personal relationship. And, and uh, that's one of the things that really drew us to, to purchasing the company.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's leads perfectly into what I wanted to ask you. So I went to, got my MBA in grad school and, you know, the whole time they're teaching us all these so-called, you know, business, words of wisdom and, and how you, what you should do and what you shouldn't do and you know their whole thing is businesses should scale you should be able to sell a lot of stuff move it through it should be able to, you should be able to automate it blah 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 and that's what you see in most companies I mean whether it's tech or manufacturing or whatever so when you guys were considering a business to buy how did you decide to go I mean obviously you love fishing but was there any did anybody tell you you shouldn't buy this because it's not a conventional business model? Oh,
2: yeah. Really? <laughs> sure. Plenty of people. That's <laughs> great. <I'm just kidding. laughs> <laughs> we we just told them they're all wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's a different model. I think um, you know one of the things that appealed to me when we started looking at the company is, is when you look at the difference between, like you're talking about, kind of traditional high-volume businesses where you're trying to scale and really niche, boutique, small manufacturers. And, and the differences between those two. When you talk about a company like... I don't know, like Hermes, right? So Hermes sure. never disclose how much they make of any of their products. And they have a really premium history in following and following at a premium price point. And it's a different idea, you know, to, to make fewer of something mm-hmm. um, to, to drive demand um, and maintain your quality. Um, and I think for us, look, the rods cost what they cost. And, and, and they, looking at the process we follow and the process that we learned from Tom – um, there's no way to make them cheaper yeah. <laughs> unless we sacrifice on this component or we sacrifice or we don't have all made in American parts or we don't have everything we can get from Montana or we don't, unless we stop degrading or start degrading that mm-hmm. the rod doesn't come cheaper you know and for us the value of the company and the value of Tom is, is making everything as best we can as good as we can yep. um, and, and you know we're also not ever going to be a 10,000 a year rod producer it sure. just, just doesn't work for a model um, for us, it's most important to be, you know, an American-made, in Montana, heritage-type brand that really sticks closely to, to what Tom envisioned the company being. Well, if, you, if you
0: give some of these business school books the benefit of the doubt, you know, one thing you guys do have going is a barrier to entry. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody's willing to work that hard, and nobody right. has the, the knowledge, the, the decades and decades of knowledge, to do what you guys do. I mean, if I decided I wanted wanted to do that one day, I don't. It would be impossible. It is funny, yeah. And you know, yeah. back to
1: you were talking a little bit earlier about that, but there, there aren't really secrets. People come through if you come when you're up in Bozeman, they'd love to show you the shop, and you'll see some things that Tom invented, some machinery, and people always ask, "Is that patented, or do you have it, you know, behind closed doors, or that kind of thing?" And Tom's philosophy was no you know i'm he he wanted to share what he knew and that he was really known around the industry as not um being somebody that was you know really close to the vest you'd call him up and he'd talk you through what it was and when we asked him about that as we were buying the company he he just basically said you know if they can spend as much time as i do and source the same quality components as i do then they can build a great rod but there's no there's no secrets to it they just you know i'm happy to help them out with their own rod building and
2: so it's become like this great legacy of paying it forward like the people that tom helped help us now uh-huh. you know the people that are these big names in fly fishing that we've leaned on you know in tom's absence help us because tom helped them that's you cool yeah, yeah that's it's a really cool um environment and community yeah. i was
0: wondering about that so you know he was obviously a legend and so how has that been stepping in where where he was i mean i it sounds like it's it's been a, a pretty good transition people have been accepting of it and all that kind of stuff
1: i think one of our biggest fears that's obvious is that you know we're the two yahoos that moved up from denver what do they know mm-hmm. you know and that pretty quickly we thought people were just going to dismiss us but really i think two parts one is that tom headed up a team of craftsmen you know i'd think of like dale chihuly the glass blower and sure. how he really has people that are executing his vision so at Winston, it was, you know, Winston was Winston's model. But under Tom Morgan Rodsmith, Tom never built a rod. And That's there are true. people that didn't know that. You know, people thought that Tom was out there in the shop day after day, but he was in the wheelchair. He couldn't he couldn't actually work on the lathe or, you know, sand the cork. And uh, so I think in one vein, he ran this team of craftsmen and really just set a vision mm-hmm. for what quality standards needed to look like and for processes. And he engineered new ways of doing things and new methods um so we were able to we're not trying to be tom you know we're not trying to redo new designs we're not trying to um you know shake up everything we're coming in with what he built following the steps and processes that he made for us and in some ways too we don't come in with a lot of habits and say well i think it should be done another way because we don't know any better Mm -hmm. you know we sit there for that cork handle we sort 13 cork um, to match all the same color hue um, so that the cork doesn't have rings in it as wow. you as you look up and down the cork and it takes forever and it's mind-numbing and you're an for that if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm uh,
0: gonna get to hang on Bozeman for a few, few weeks, I might do that. That'd you know yeah. And we do that for
1: each customer, and we've got the customer's name in front of that handle as we're making it. And you know, I think people that have probably worked for a long time in the in the fly rod industry would come in and say, that's ridiculous. I'm just not doing that. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know any better. So I guess that's yeah. a good thing. We you have know, no we, bad habits. All of our
2: habits are Tom and Jerry's habits. So uh, that's like <laughs> You know, it's like good kid, it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's,
0: and not, I would imagine nobody or very, very few people who are running a business have those habits. Maybe somebody in his garage who, mm-hmm. who makes, you know, rods for himself or for his family might, but that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty intense. And
1: you can feel it though. You can feel the pressure. Like we're getting ready for this, this show this weekend here in Denver and we, we wanted to build one more rod to bring with us and suddenly working under this timetable you right. can feel and we're, your natural tendency is to say well maybe we'll do one less coat on the coating or we'll do, you know, we'll just kind of we won't let the glue dry overnight and we'll just do it but you got to fight that it's a real natural tendency to want to, to wanna do that and Tom was in our ear constantly with you, you can't listen to those voices and every time you hear that voice it's for a reason you got to go the other way sure, you know, sure So
0: mm-hmm. this is kind of a uh, a heady question, I guess, but you know, learning this attention to detail and this focus on the process has that has that expanded into your non-work life at all? I would imagine that that um, kind of spending eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen hours a day on that that very, very focused attention to detail, attention to process. Um, the highest standards. Have you noticed anything in your in your personal life change because of that? Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, don't know. I would say. One, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say so, I've
1: noticed it in ways that you know, like that book, the Power of Habit, like how you yeah. Yeah. create habit. Yeah. So I've found it where you go to walk past something and you see it on the floor uh-huh. and you notice mm-hmm. it, and we all just walk past that thing, mm-hmm. and and I've consciously make myself pick that up yeah. or you know make that thing right because I think if you don't do it all the time, then, you know, you're not going to do it. When you need to, yeah, that's interesting. I
2: think I've always had perfectionist tendencies. I've never really been really? Allowed, allowed to engage them, though. <laughs> I mean, I think in most places, people are like, "Dude, you, you know, my wife gets so mad when I order at a restaurant because I kind of want everything. I want to figure out some way to combine everything, right? Uh, and it just takes me forever to decide because I want it to be perfect. Video? Oh yeah, oh Man, I read everything how on the my movie. life is, yeah. <laughs> and it just drives her crazy. And so you know, in your normal life, we all these busy lives. You can't really engage this idea that yeah, there's still a dust speck on there. I'm gonna I'm gonna get that dust speck. Oh, well, there's another dust back. And that's what we do when we make rods. Everything we can see, we try to fix. Wow. We try to make right. And in a way, it's sort of meditative. There's different steps in the process where I think we both find it's this kind of meditative where you kind of almost lose yourself in the detail of sure. it. Sure. Um, and I think i mean I have a 21-month-old at home, so I don't have a lot of time to be <laughs> meditative with him. It's kind of going all the time. But I think that has affected me. And I think... You know, one of the big drivers, I think, for both Matt and I, when we bought the company and kind of one of the things that really drew us to Bozeman and Montana and making fly rods and Tom Morgan was this idea of authenticity and yeah. like doing something that felt real. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, in, in my life, I know in particular working for a big company, I just didn't feel like I did anything real, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and this felt so much more real to talk to a person and make a product for them that is going to bring them enjoyment mm-hmm. to me seemed like the most authentic thing we could do. Um, at least in my life, best opportunity I had, you know, and, and I think that was a really powerful draw for us both. Yeah.
0: Had either of you ever been committed, even just on like a hobby level, to making stuff? I mean, is that something that you guys? I think
1: didn't... that's where, uh, since I was a little kid, mm-hmm. you know, we grew up in an old Victorian home where you had to start fixing from the front porch, <laughs> and by the time you hit the back porch, the front porch was falling off again. Sure, and then, sure. so, at the earliest, ages, where did you grow up? Uh, in Windsor, Connecticut, okay, uh, on it, the East Coast. But I remember just constant constant tinkering and building and that's something I got from my dad and uh so that was part of why I wanted to make the jump is I thought of the things you know working in a middle school was amazing and I loved working with the kids and the families and you know wouldn't have traded that time for anything but I found that when I went home and I was stressed the thing I did is went out in the garage and worked or I sat down and tied flies or or things like that so the things I was doing to relieve stress now are my job. Yeah. So that's that's pretty a cool. pretty cool thing to be able to have.
0: Yeah, that's definitely cool. I was I recently interviewed a a woman named Kate Halfstad who makes hats, and she makes these kind of the same idea what you guys do with fly ride. she does mm-hmm. with hats. Mm-hmm. And she I wear was, a lot of hats yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she her, was yeah. talking about uh th- how you know humans she thinks it's a deep desire in our dna to make stuff mm-hmm. and if you think about it that's one of the only few things we have going for us as a species is mm-hmm. that we can make tools and you know team up and and so i think it does reach something inside of us that we don't you know normally in modern day we don't mm-hmm. reach because we're looking at computers all day long
1: mm-hmm. something i think we got from time and kind of fit in well with us and also our employees we still have many of the same team that worked with tom still work with us so we're not just out making it up as we go in the shop but um tom you know if there wasn't something and i think this is probably very much the western way or the montana way you, you don't just jump on Amazon and buy a new tool for it. There is no tool for it, so you got to make it. Yeah. Um, so it, it's as common that we're building a rod as that we're sitting at the milling machine, uh, you know, with a thought in our head about a new tool or a new jig or a new something, and we're we're sitting there creating it. And, yeah. and I, I that might frustrate people to come up against a problem that you know can't be solved by you know Amazon Prime but I I love just trying to be inventive and trying to figure it out and trying to build it and I think that's probably something that we share with Tom
2: yeah Um, yeah Tom used to say every problem is just something that's waiting for a solution yeah and that's kind of how he viewed things I really admired that about him I'm not as handy as Matt I'm not a builder I mean I think I really was drawn to kind of the aesthetic quality of the rods Uh you know and the, the craftsmanship of the rods um, but I, I think I, I probably fell more victim to that disposable, you know, buy it on Amazon and make it fast. Sure. sure. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the whole, the whole environment of Bozeman and, and Montana, you know, having a, a fly fishing business there, like we were even talking about it today, driving into Denver, like the pace and the, the, just the energy is so much different in Bozeman. People just drive slower, mm-hmm. you know, people talk to you more. Like it's just like the whole thing is dialed down a little bit. And it I think is. that, you know, it was, it was Tom Morgan Rodsmith's and the lifestyle of Bozeman and Montana were the match. You know, that was kind of what brought everything together. Maybe we would have bought car washes in, you know, San Luis Obispo. Who knows? But that town and that opportunity were the things that meshed so well.
0: That's so. one thing I wanted to ask you about. When I was in Wyoming, I had the opportunity to either go to Mont- go to Bozeman, move to Bozeman and open an office for the company I was working for, or go to grad school when I went to grad school, which was good timing when the real estate markets crashed. But, but um, I've always loved Bozeman, and I think it's such a cool authentic, unique place. Can you talk a little bit about living there, how it contributes to the business, how you like it for your families, just brag about Bozeman a little bit? Well,
1: the first remark from anybody in Bozeman would be, don't talk about Bozeman, because they don't want more people moving there.
2: Yeah, Um, Yeah, a little traitorous if you ask us that question. (laughs) There's uh,
1: quite a bit of growth and expansion there, but... um, but really, you know, it's just set in a really naturally beautiful place and there's any kind of outdoor thing that you want to do is right at your doorstep. But I've really found just the people to be so welcoming and so kind. Mm-hmm. So even though we're part of that problem, we're the folks that moved up from Denver and, yeah. and you know, are, are contributing to the growth of Bose. and people will give you that with a smile and then engage you in a, you know, in a conversation. So it's been really welcoming, you know, people that just come pop into the shop and come by and stop in to talk and just see what we're up to and just visit with us. And I've really enjoyed that piece and um, you know, that's something with our shop you know we don't have much of a retail space there's just a little office in the front but it's really our production facility and i love that people come in and get to see how we're doing things and get to just talk things through and um i don't see myself as much of a salesman i'm not you know trying to trying to sell stuff but i love just talking about what we do and a lot of times that results with people saying i want to be a part of this i want to have something like this and and, Mm -hmm. in wanting a rod so um that's been a lot of fun
0: yeah, it's it's a neat place up there. I feel like Montana, it's like a mini Alaska, and then mm-hmm. you know everything is bigger. You know the the landscape, the valleys are bigger, the rivers are bigger, the wildlife's mm-hmm. bigger. Um, it's it's super cool. I mean, yeah. that's it's a great it's, corollary it's to been,
1: Alaska. Yeah. Been yeah. really interesting to have you know we got row drift boats down at Four Corners and Sims and mm-hmm. you know we, we're making rods there and Big Sky rod box and you know Bozeman
2: reels and four oh six lines I mean yeah, I you can do you know you get everything
1: to, in fly fishing
2: everybody we know right is at least a part time fishing guy pretty much right <laughs> yeah I mean you sit next to somebody in, in my son's swim class and her husband's a, a part time fishing guy sure everybody fishes and so you kind of that community everybody understands the product and, and what you're trying to do and how it's different yeah um, which is really nice I mean I think I grew up west of Denver and I just grew up outside you know we, we were outside all the time and I think Matt and I both felt kind of Denver's growth and living pretty close and in downtown um, our kids just wouldn't have that experience they just wouldn't be outside all day long playing in rivers and skiing and snowshoeing and falling around and climbing trees and and I think Bozeman is is such a great it's so cliche to say a great family environment or a great, great place for kids but it just feels like it's such a great community for that. It's so accessible and it so is. small. And you're right next to the streams and you're right next to the mountains. And, and it's you know.
0: going to, you know, I think having a university there um, yeah, adds a lot that. of
2: character yep. to it. And
0: it's, um, it's a cool place. You know, people, people think Denver, people who haven't spent a lot of time in Denver think Denver is Colorado mountains. So, you know, I'm going to live in the mountains, but you're an hour from the mountains here. I mean, from, I know it hurts
2: Denver. my heart. I grew up here. <laughs> yeah. It's changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, you yeah. know,
0: to get from Denver to a trailhead, it's at least an hour. Mm-hmm. And that's, we recently moved from Boulder and we were trying to figure out where we wanted to be. And the only reason I live out here is because of mountains. And so I'm not going to live an hour from the mountains. And so, you know, we're in Colorado Springs now, which is, you know, you're I'm 10 minutes from a trailhead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a lot to be said for being in the middle of it, especially in the fishing world. Mm-hmm. Man. Um, so can we talk a little bit about how you guys ended up acquiring this business or what that process was like? Cause I, I would imagine it was not the kind of thing where some sort of, business broker or banker somebody said all right highest bidders we're taking bids it was more of a long interview to get to know you guys i think that would probably be a lot more important than the yeah so i think
2: um i think i mentioned so i kind of knew about the company and i would kind of cruise the website for tom morgan rod's best i'd tell my wife when i got off the computer hey i need to buy some of these rods before they're not around anymore (laughs) (laughs) Need to, yeah i I gotta do this you know and then uh, you know i'd buy four sages in the same time period not buy a, a, a morgan rod and um, they had put a notice up on the website. So it was during one of my every six months forays on the website, I saw the notice. And, I, you know, I saw it and was like, "Well, that's, oh, so they're selling it, they're, you know, I wonder what's going on. And, you know, kind of thought about it. I went to bed, woke up the next morning, was still kind of thinking about it. Um, so I sent, sent an email and um, Jerry responded really quickly and I kind of started talking to Matt, another friend of ours, was kind of this fancy daydream, right? Like, hey, you want to make fly rods in Montana and fish all the time and, you know, for free with all the best guides in the world and, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And we started kind of thinking about it and Matt and I had lamented kind of the state of Denver and, you know, having young kids in Denver and, you know, how that was going to work out long-term. And so we had all these confluence of factors kind of coming together. And then really over the next, you know, a couple months, we sent a couple more emails and started talking to them and, you know, there's a little qualification process. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know, they want to talk to people that were serious about it. So yeah. we did some of that stuff and, you know, and kind of kept talking to them and, and got to the point where we wanted to come visit bozeman matt and his family were actually in jackson visiting some friends and lindsey and i had some time my wife and i had some time so we were going to be in bozeman and they came out to bozeman to meet us we rented right a house and kind of spent a long weekend there and um you know at the end of the, towards the end of the weekend had decided we'd go out and visit tom and jerry and so um you can see it on the website but they have this house that's kind of outside of town on the way to the madison river on a bluff kind of looking cool. at surrounded by mountain ranges with this amazing vista and they overlook Uncle Ted's place, so it's kind of right. on the edge of Ted Turner's Ranch. Oh nice. Yeah, they're out there and you know you drive on this road. It's the only thing out there really on this hilltop overlooking the mountains. You drive up there and it's this kind of monumental experience to to make that pilgrimage. Sure. And lots of people have done it over the years. You know, people have come from as far away as Japan to go see Tom uh-huh. and pick up their rod and you know and spend the day with Tom. And you know you walk in and meet them and it was it was kind of an overwhelming experience to meet him and and having read about him and, and you know and, and heard about his story and yeah. and meet Jerry and you know talk to them about the business and see the shop that they had built and. And then we we went outside and they gave us a bunch of rods to cast. And of course, you know, the minute we walk outside, the wind picks up. Uh And Tom's sitting at the big window in the kitchen watching us cast in, you know, 20, 30 mile an hour winds, these little bamboo rods Uh and fiberglass rods. And we're talking to each other. I hope we don't, you know, no tailing loops here, taking time, you know. (laughs) And uh, we come back in and it's closest we probably got to a casting company from Tom, as you said, we were okay we were okay casters um, so uh, yeah and then we left and we were like well that was kind of cool and you know they, they said you know we had some other people looking at the business and you know it hasn't worked out for a variety of reasons but um, and I said look we know we'd like to take you know four or six weeks here and put together our best offer and you know proceed from there and you know kind of left feeling like well this maybe is something we could do yeah. and uh, and Lindsay and I drove back to Denver and then Matt was coming back and they called him the day he left two days later I think and Matt came and said, Hey, they've got another offer, so we have a week. Ooh. Yeah, you know, to, to put something together. So then it was like all hands on deck. And we kind of, you know, started running pretty hard and, and doing as much as we could um, and made an offer that they accepted. Nice. And, and so then spent the next, God, eight months? basically, with weekly calls. We just had all these timelines and kind of metrics that we wanted to do as we were doing diligence and working through the deal with them yeah. um, and trying to come up you know, with, the, with money and doing inventory and looking at vendors and, and all these different kinds of things. Um, and that ended up really with kind of the resolution of the deal on February 1st of this last year, 2017. So we'd spent a lot of time you know going through and you know with this this kind of a company it's never a straight value proposition i think either no you know, because definitely. for us it is kind of a lifestyle it is kind of a, a quality of life decision for us uh-huh. um, and we certainly had I had a couple of guys that were in MA that this was such a small deal for them they were like we can't i can't do this for you on payroll but i'll give you advice yeah, you know and they're yeah. like this is crazy you know you'd offer you know half of what you're thinking about and i was like well i get it but you know part of the deal with this too is we wanted to learn from them uh-huh. we wanted them to stay a part of the company and really teach us how to continue what they had built, yeah, um, and it wasn't a you know buy a disposable business and just scale it up and run it you sure. know, for more money. It wasn't that type of a of a transaction. And us. I think
1: it, to hear them tell it too, I think it went both ways. You know, they had had a number of buyers come across and um, had had deals not work out for one reason or another, and it was a lot of what you talked about traditional modeling. You know, people wanted. to push blank production overseas or people wanted to move it out of montana or people wanted to make a low price point rod an entry level morgan just sure. to get it in the hands of everybody and yeah. put it in retail spaces and you know so everybody had a lot of ideas that kind of fell into the the generic model of rod we'll, building we'll right give now you 50 grand now and pay you back in two years or you know it's a lot of those kind of models yeah so yeah. Uh, i think what they liked about us is from the start, we said we want to keep it here in Montana. We want to source as many products as we can locally, and it, have everything else come from you know within the states. And we want to um, we want to hand build each rod and have a personal relationship with the customers. We don't want to go retail. We want to raise our families around this. I want the boys are you know there's Legos and Matchbox cars all over our shop because yeah. the boys are in there playing so
2: we think Hudson's you, the only four year old with a Morgan rod yeah right? uh,
1: <laughs> Hud, Hud did get a five weight for his uh, fourth birthday nice. and right he, he, he says uh, dad I want to fish my five weight like, oh my god <laughs> worst spoil, case it, if you're it, starting out now at four with, a, with oh, yeah. a TMR rod I don't know where he goes from there yeah
0: only <laughs> yeah, well, 14 uh, years if he needs like a down payment for college or something he'll be sweeping the shop. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, man Well, that's cool so you, you took Possess, I guess, possession, in quotes, of the company in February. And pretty soon thereafter, Tom passed away, correct? He passed away in, in June of this yeah. year. Yeah, June So 12th. was that, I bet that was just uh, devastating for everybody.
1: Yeah, you know, he. we didn't see it coming. They didn't see it coming. You know, the one thing he did say to us when we met him is he said, if I ever get pneumonia, that's what's going to get me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he otherwise was in good health. And really because of Jerry, I mean, she... I think what a lot of people don't know, is she was making rods full-time and his full-time caregiver. So, you know, between coatings on, on the bamboo rod, she was running in and, you know, changing out the sheets on the bed or, yeah. you know, getting him up the into wheelchair his wheelchair and yep. um, feeding him and things like that. So her care really, you know, kept him strong, but he ended up developing pneumonia and it, and it happened pretty fast. We were... Um, all working on a rod together on a Thursday and he passed on on that Sunday so he was things were going well and then they weren't you
0: know and it it all happened pretty quick so I mean how did you guys even process that because I mean that's just that's huge that's a huge loss on so many levels but I mean was it yeah, you know, I guess, I guess, Jerry, I, I want to hear more about Jerry. If, let me, I want to hear more about Jerry right now because yeah. she seems like a force of nature. She is. Um, yeah. Can yeah. you just talk about her, her personality and kind of. Yeah. So Jerry, you know, for Tom's
1: engineering um, mindset, Jerry is an artist. So they kind of you know, had different approaches to things, but really kind of common ways of looking at them once they were together. And Jerry's super creative and she journals and she paints and she does, you know, all of these really interesting things. So it was a logical piece when they they teamed up to build rods together. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, she, her, her kind of dogged approach to everything. She's just doesn't take no. And, um, you know, and she just, like we
2: said, she was Tom's caregiver and and really just, Mm -hmm. I think we still learn something from Jerry every day. Yeah, so you know, how much? So we much still is... see her quite a bit. I mean, I, we just had moved kind of one of the final processes of the rod building process out of their garage shop. Mm-hmm. We Just did that last week, but I think we—I've been up there for just about every day, two weeks straight. Um, yeah, and I think um, it, you know we're really, really very fortunate. I think you know the loss of Tom, like you said, was terrifying in a lot of ways It, it was obviously unexpected. But you know the presence of Jerry, I think, has really made that. Um, n- not as impactful as it could have been. Sure, you know, and, and the continued support of her and her understanding the process and having become, I think maybe even to her surprise, such a tremendous rod builder. You know, for somebody that didn't have Tom's background in this and, and becoming fish. really his nice extension. Sure. Yeah, yeah, right, and, and not really a fisherman but a craftsperson person. You know, and an artist and understanding. You know, kind of the minute attention to detail uh-huh. that, that's required. Um, I, I think we're really just so fortunate because she's such a part of the company still you know, and will be for, for many years going forward. So I think, um, you know, we're very fortunate for that. And I think, you know, one of, one of some of the best advice I ever got, I know I'm stealing one of your questions from later, but you know, is, is that fear is excitement without the breath. Um, And I think that we find ourselves so much in our life and I'm not a yogi and I'm not a Buddhist, but you know, I think when I find myself stressed, I realize I'm not breathing, Oh yeah, you know, and you can feel the tightness in in your chest. And, and, And when that, those kind of things happen, if you can just remind yourself, to breathe, uh-huh. you know, and, and that almost physically moves you forward, It does, you know, and it helps you kind of move through those things. And so I think, you know, although it was unexpected, I think we knew that Tom wasn't going to be around for 20 years, you know, and, and in many ways, I think we were thankful that it happened as it did because we had time with him, you know, and, and we were able to kind of learn a lot of the things that we needed to learn from Tom from a design standpoint. And then from Jerry, we learned really the application of all of those things and the making of these rods.
1: I think for me, I remember Jerry saying, you know, I need you to call, you know, Gary Loomis. I need you to call Annette over at Winston and tell them and and let them know what happened. I'm just feeling overwhelmed, you know, and I got on the phone and both of them, you know, these really these icons in in the industry just said, you know, we're here for you guys. And, you know, obviously sad about what happened with Tom, but they just were so reassuring how in ways that Tom had had given to them during earlier on in their careers and they just said don't worry we're here to give back to you guys and that really was grounding for me and then i think the most important thing is at um at the hotel that tom's parents owned back in ennis um we had a memorial uh, uh kind of gathering for him in july and it was just friends and family and even people that just owned a couple rods flew in yeah. just to come to this thing and wow. so this is really Joel and I were out fishing on Odell Creek in the morning, just able to kind of reflect on what was happening and um just the, the gathering of people and, and the support and I think we left that feeling going a little bit from that being terrified to feeling like we can do this. Um, yeah, you know. So that was it was a roller coaster this summer.
0: I'm sure it was. Yeah. I mean just, just owning a new business is enough of a roller coaster and you right. throw that in. But I you guys wouldn't say this, but I, I would I would imagine that it was There was a lot of relief on on their end as well that they had good stewards of this business in place because if this whole thing, if that had happened a year or two earlier, it would have been even rougher, I would Mm -hmm. imagine. So it's kind of a, as sad as it is, it's kind of like a poignant transition uh, for the business. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you guys talk a little bit about the Odell rod, the one rod that actually has a name for a limited time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because that... It's a cool story and it involves, um, a former podcast guest, Duke Beersley, who's super cool and is all about what you guys are doing. So can you t- tell the story of that rod? Sure. Yeah. So
1: we were that rod, we were talking about designing Tom said, you know, I want to, I want to mentor you guys through this design process, but I'm not just going to tell you about it. Let's actually work on a rod together. Let's work on this design that I've had in my head. I want to design this, this four weight rod and and I want to talk you guys through all of it. And, uh, Joel, you might want to talk about some of those bedside Yeah, so we, you know,
2: we, we kind of had set up times to sit. You know, he pretty good in the morning, so he had his morning routine, and then he had some time in the morning where he was usually doing computer work. And we would kind of sit and go over patterns and talk about some of his design philosophies. Um, and I think, I'm assuming, I don't know other rod designers as well as we know Tom, but I think people have different approaches to how you make a fly rod and, and, you know, there's different materials and, and there's different ideas. And so, you know, one of Tom's guiding principles with design was, um, he was always most concerned about the tip of the fly rod. Okay. So he was a dry fly fisherman, um, relatively short distance, um, and really wanted to feel everything that was going on when you're casting and fishing with the tip of the fly rod. So he was a tip first designer, um, and, and had some different ideas around tapers and then we do some different things with joints, mm-hmm. basically where we're making the sections of the rods, you know, whether it's a four piece or a two piece. And so we kind of learned some of those things from him and some of the key things. And I guess if there is secret sauce, there is a little bit of secret sauce in, in some of the metrics we use. And really rod design, you know, you take those principles, it's kind of it's an inverted triangle. So you have these principles of tip's the most important, the butt ends up wherever it is, you know. And then you have some things that go into a spreadsheet and, and you know, not to get too into fly rod design, but essentially what you're doing is, um, you know, these, these rods are long, so you're creating hollow tubes of fabric um, yeah. that are tapered. Um, Essentially, and and you put that in a spreadsheet, and there's a little bit of overlap in the two sections that we make when we make blanks. And then you look at things like how much the fiber or the fabric is wrapped around when you make that tube. And there's some ideas around that. And you basically make a dynamic spreadsheet where you change different measurements, and it affects things like overlap and inner diameter, and predicted outside diameter, and some things like that. Um, and I think the real trick, you know, for, for fly rod design is understanding what those numbers mean when they translate to the rod being in somebody's hand. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the, a lot of the conversations we had were around, you know, how, how the, the math works um, when you do that and how that then influences what a Morgan rod is. Um, and I think a Morgan rod is different than an Orvis rod or a sage rod or a fly rod or, a, 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 a um, uh, you know, a sage rod or something like that. And, and they all have different ideas yep. about how that works. And, and I think that... Um, Understanding some of those things from Tom I think really helped us and so then we go to a pattern so you get kind of that basic stuff And then you look at a specific pattern uh-huh. and you say, well if I do this or that how's it going to change? Yep. you know, and so we kind of get arrive at a design and then you got to make it uh-huh. so, you know You roll a blank and you get the blanket and you wiggle it around you deflect it you bend it um, You make the rod you cast it and, and so we went through that process with Tom and um, up to the design process. And then, unfortunately, you know, he, he passed. So we have this design from Tom, Yeah. right, that we think is, is was his new eight-foot, eight four-weight, two-piece rod. And we make the blanks, and, you know, materials greatly influence blanks, resins can influence blank, or yep. fly rod design. So we make a couple of them, we bring them back to the shop, and one of the great legacies Tom created for us is the people that were his hands as casters still support us. So yep. we bring those guys in, and they start casting out in the parking lot, and We and we talk to them about what they liked and didn't like, and we found out those rods really weren't what we were looking for. Interesting. So then, you know, like Matt had mentioned, we were able to call up some of these people. Like I'm still in awe. We can call Gary Loomis and Kay Bird <laughs> And they pick up the phone and say, yeah, i think about it. and they talk to us about it, design. And and you know, and give us these these insights that we don't have. That
0: makes me feel better about the world in general.
2: It really does. That kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They weren't like, eh, pff, you guys are on your own. Yeah, Get out, too out of here. Bad. You know, so they give us some ideas and we go back and look at the notes we have from Tom and and Tom's ideas and look at some of his old fly rods. You know, that, that had been made before, and we come up with a slightly different tweak mm-hmm. of that design. We make them again and bring them back and, and start casting them again and do that kind of iterative process. And so we were lucky that pretty quickly thereafter, with the people that knew Tom and cast for Tom, mm-hmm. agreed that this rod was an extension of what Tom would have wanted wow. so when, for this. So yeah. when
1: Tom passed, you know, we went from it was just going to be like everything else, it was just going to be the two piece eight foot four yeah. fitting into the line. And we said, you know what, it, it, this rod. Begs doing something special with it, so we were driving out to the Golden Gate Angling Club and we just started kind of batting around names and we thought, you know, the Odell would be perfect because when Tom described the design of this rod, he described fishing Odell Creek and why he wanted a rod that cast a certain distance or yeah. for, a, for a certain fish, and and this was really the creek he had in mind when he was designing this rod. Um, So we said, you know what, let's let's do 50 of them in honor of Tom. Let's do it the way Tom would have wanted it. So everything, when you call up and you get to pick your handle or pick your reel seat wood or pick your hardware and things, we're doing this one, you don't get a choice. You're doing it the way Tom would have done it. So Mm -hmm. he liked the Western Cigar Grip, and he liked um, the down-locking hardware because it got the reel down to the bottom of the rod. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're using some box elder wood that Tom really liked to make the 50 reel seats with. And then I was, you know, just kind of racking my brain with another way to kind of honor Tom and make it special. And, uh, Duke is a friend of a friend and we, we, we've got some friends in common. And I was on a trip down to Denver and went out to his studio and we just started kind of batting around ideas and talking about fly fishing. And we had a lot of common places and common stories. And, you know, we just, we just really hit it off in that way. And at the end of it, he he really said yeah i want to i want to you know do something that's special for this project so i'm going to come up with a print and uh you guys will make 50 rods i'll make 50 prints we'll number them and you know number one goes with number one of the rod and the print set uh but he said you know i one thing i'm committed to is that my work does something bigger than than you and i and just selling some rods and it's something i think that joel and i believe very much in Mm -hmm. too so uh you know, I, I said I, I agree. Let's let's think of a way that we can partner up on this rod. And um, so Whitney, who's the director of Casting for Recovery, is someone we know through Bozeman, and, and it's just phenomenal in her own right. And um, Casting for Recovery gets uh, women with, with, in various stages of breast cancer out on the water to fish and empowers them through. F- through fly fishing yep. in, in, on wherever they are within their journey. And um, so we decided that it was, you know, something that was meaningful to me, meaningful to Joel, meaningful to Duke. And we decided to donate one of the rods and one of the prints to Casting for Recovery um, that nice. they could auction off to benefit them. And, you know, and it, it, back to your point about big business, you know, we can't just throw big checks here and there to help yep. out, but it, it's meaningful and impactful to us on a project like this, that we can help it any is. way we
0: can. Well, that's a, that's a partnership between, three different groups that are all you know have these common goals and common values you know duke is such a supporter of conservation and important issues he uses his art for that and you guys are using your odds for that and then casting for covey's doing great work and so um i think that's just i think that's really cool and that's how kind of how we got connected yeah um so that's that's awesome um so last question about the business because i know you guys have important stuff to do um (laughs) Where do you see the business going in three, five, ten years? Um, I know it's you're almost at a year. That's barely even getting your feet wet. Um, yep. And so, what's the what's the plan?
1: I think you know our dream is to find a way to sustain in everything that we've talked about today. You know, Tom, we talked a lot with Tom. But what's the magic number of rods you need to sell in a year to yeah. do what we're talking about? Um, and he didn't have a firm answer, but he said, you'll kind of know it when you get there. Um, and as soon as we have to start cutting corners on rod production and in, you know, feeling like we're kind of slaves to that production model and quality going down, we know we've hit that number. We need to back off, you know, so we really want to in three, five, 10 years, we want to make enough rods, um. Where we're able to still make them custom, make them for each individual customer we want to you know know you, we want to share fishing stories, we want you to come up to Bozeman and you know see the shop and see where your rod was built and and be a part of that. Um, one thing we're going to start working with Montana angler this summer to try to do some partnered trips. So things where you come out and you use our rods during a trip and you cast and we provide some casting instruction through instructors that we know, um, you get to hear about Tom, hear the story, see the shop as, as part of the travel, uh, and then be with them in, you know, world-class water in Montana fishing. And, uh, so that, you know, those are ways that we're looking to broaden a little bit beyond what, what. Tom and Jerry did is um, just we got to be a little creative because Rod sold themselves with Tom. People, sure. you know, we're on a pilgrimage to find Tom. We have to kind of come up with some different ways to do it, and and uh, so I think that if you come back in five years, it'll look very much the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Hopefully,
2: yeah, um, so as it should. We'd like to grow, but we'd like to grow very slowly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, because <laughs> I think that's the only way, like Matt said, we can keep things at the same quality level they are now. Yeah, you know, and I think we're never going to be a multinational. <laughs> Outdoor company. We understand that. We're okay with that. I yeah. think that's a great realization yeah. to have. It yeah. know that you know talking about Yvonne
0: Chenard, he, he came close to losing that company a few times because he got focused on growth versus mm-hmm. making good stuff. Right. right. And um, I think being able to have kind of mentors from afar like that and learn lessons that's if you're smart enough to see it. Yeah. <laughs> it I happen to. It.
1: I read an article. My wife read it to me while we were driving to go skiing in Crested Butte, and it was uh, the rise and fall of Jay Peterman, the the company, the outdoor company, or they became kind of a clothing company. Kind of famous from Seinfeld, um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, but really, it was about like finding your true north and staying dedicated to your true north. And sometimes you'll be presented with business decisions that are kind of like candy. They look good in the short term, and they're going to probably make some money in the short term. But because you get away from that that north star, then you know, in the long term, they become the ruin of your company. So maybe you expand too fast, or maybe you start selling, you know, products that don't really relate to what your core is, and then you lose that core customer base, you know, things like that. So that article read, you know, right at the right time for me, it's really resonated for me that, you know, we ask ourselves a lot, we're faced with some different things, do we partner with this group? Or do we, do we let these people, you know, talk about our rods and so on. And sometimes, in the short term, it might result in a rod sale, and it seems like it's great. But in the long term, it gets away. They, they don't necessarily align with what we want to do yeah. or represent the same things that we want to represent. Um, so we, we've we kind of kept coming back and saying, does this represent our true north? Is it where we're going? And um, we've turned down some opportunities that might have sold a couple of rods here yeah. here and there pretty quickly. Yeah, we um, talk about that a lot,
2: and I, I think it's been interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, the idea of buying a business, I guess they're not surprisingly it takes lots of different shapes right sure and and i think that at some points i had this feeling like we're just buying a car and somebody's giving us the keys right don't crash the car yeah you know but the reality is you got to fill up the car with gas you got to figure out where you're going to drive it you got to clean it you got you know maintain it you got to change the oil there's a lot of decisions that pretty quickly we had to make um and still do you know that that could change the company drastically if we're not really careful Mm -hmm. with it you know that that really changed that 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 idea um and we want to do things and it's tempting I think especially in this world, it's tempting to do things really fast or or just grab money or or, or try to sell, you know, as much as you can right away. And I think we're fortunate in that we're not in a position where we have to do those things. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we can make choices that maybe are a little counterintuitive to your regular MBA student, you know, um, and then hope that they work out, you know, and and that we stay dedicated to that and really stay devoted to making what what Tom thought was the, the best trout rod you could make. You know, we're not making rods for GTs. We're not We're not making spare rods. We want to make the best trout rod. Maybe someday when we think we've done that and it's there's nowhere else to go, then we'll look at, you know, these other things. Yeah. But we're trying to, to maintain our focus as much as we can.
0: That's cool, and that's great to hear. Uh, you, you just see how a lot of businesses operate, and it's disheartening. And so it's guys like y'all and Shenard and those folks, there, it's a rarity, but it needs to be there. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so some of the quick questions that I've asked – pretty much everybody I've had on the podcast, I like to run through a few of those mm-hmm. um, just because it's cool to compare the answers. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite, if you have one or two or three favorite books related to the American West? Yeah, it's funny.
1: I've talked to you a little bit. You're, you're a nonfiction guy. Oh, I, yeah, completely. I, would, I was a literature major in college, so I fall right down the fiction realm. but right. um, Anything by Wallace Stegner, but Angle yeah. of Pose is, is kind of a Iconic Western. My novel. wife just finished uh, that like, last you? week, and yeah. I loved it. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great book. Uh, I also think about fishing. Uh, the River Why? Have you read River Why?
0: <laughs> I have not. I've got it on my shelf, but I haven't read it. That's a book. Uh,
1: it's rare for me to go back and reread books. Really, um, okay. it's also rare for me to laugh out loud. When I'm reading a book, and that's a book I, I've reread a number of times, and somebody found myself sitting in public just laughing out loud. Mm-hmm.
0: Somebody else I had—I can't remember off the top of my head—but there was somebody on, who I had on the podcast who, who said the exact same huh. thing. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I need to—I need to read. I need to read more fiction. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and I need to get through more novels. Yeah, fiction. I'm a fiction guy, but I, I read books so fast. It's a tough question. I—I I, I love Cormac McCarthy, and so like all the Pretty Horses. That's kind of a more southwestern story. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. I love that book. The movie I thought was just so terrible, but the book was always was great. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's so cliche, but I my favorite book ending ever is A River Runs Through It."
0: Uh-huh. You
2: know, I think I yep. read that book in college, and just that last paragraph of that book is just haunting to me. Um, I, I need to read more fiction. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I really do. I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll start. You give us
1: three nonfiction titles, we'll give you three right. fiction yeah, titles. We drag right. each other <laughs> through, through this
0: yeah. I've got so many. Yeah, I get so many good recommendations, and I, I try. I try my hardest. I have just
2: I, the older I get, the more I am amazed every time I walk in a bookstore. Really? How much creativity is, is just represented in a bookstore? I love books. all those people writing original things, and that I mean, is it's hard. just amazing. I couldn't write a book.
0: I think that'd be <laughs> yeah. the hardest. I'd love to. I have dreams of one day writing a book, but I can't. It just seems like the hardest thing mm-hmm. I can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's and I do some decently hard physical stuff, and I'm like, it's nothing compared to <sighs> writing yeah. a book. It would, yeah. it would destroy me. Maybe one day when I'm tougher. Uh, <laughs> any favorite documentaries or films?
2: You know, it's, it's a good question. You know, I, I, and I was, we were talking about this yesterday a little bit, Matt and I both. I, I think, you know, I, I tend to think of them as they fall in different categories. The most impactful film for me probably was Platoon because of the age I was when I saw it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was such a, 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 a just an eye-opening film about the world you know, and what war is and all these different things. So I just think of that as, but I wouldn't sit down and watch it, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it had such a, such a, um, an impact on me as a young man, I think. Um, you know, documentaries. Oh gosh. There's a, a, a kind of crazy documentary called I like killing flies. Uh, it's an it. old documentary about this really a kind of savant cook in, in New York city in, in Brooklyn um, who had this really tiny restaurant and he had literally 400 items on his menu and it was a kitchen that was like you know four by four and he invented all these tools that allowed him to stand in one place over the the kitchen and and uh, and make all the meals he had a rule if you had a reservation for six people he immediately kicked you out if you asked for a table of six no tables of six he would immediately kick you out and there's an amazing point in the documentary this guy um and it was kind of a kind of a commentary on gentrification in new york and all these other different things that were going on but his restaurant was in the first floor of this building it was being turned into condos. Uh-huh. So he was getting kicked out by the developer. Yeah. And he was just lamenting the fact that his world was turned upside down and his customers wouldn't be able to find him anymore at the new location. And, you know, just just destroyed by this, this event yeah. that was going to change his life. And the camera pans and the new location is a block and a half away <laughs> at the end of the street. I need to look that up. Yeah, that it was, good. so it was a really fun documentary. Yeah, I like Killing Flies.
1: I think one I, yeah. I used to show my students all the time um, was a movie called Rivers and Tides uh, uh-huh. about an artist, Andy Goldsworthy. Okay. Um, and he did a lot of art, it, natural art in the moment. You know, So he would do things where he would build this like phenomenal structure con- combining ice and rock, but as soon as the sun came up over the ridge the whole thing fell apart or he'd build something below the high tide mark. And it was like this phenomenal wood driftwood structure. And he spent half a day doing it. And then the tide came up and the whole thing washed away. Uh, But it was, you know, kind of like the monks that do the sand art, you know, beauty in the moment kind of thing. So I was thinking about the
0: monks and the sand art when you guys were talking about building the rides Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. you got to be ready to snap it when you're 95% done. Mm -hmm. It's the same idea. And just just focus on the process and not the goal, Mm -hmm. which is hard to do, man. Mm -hmm. Um, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be funny, scary, crazy, m- memorable. I think for me, I, I was uh, climbing a
1: couple 14 years with friends uh, from here in Denver. And we got caught in a lightning storm, you know, where everything just turns upside down all at once. Yep. And hail. And we were under, you know, I, I think of us, you know, as guys that were pretty prepared in general. But just underprepared for clothing in that moment sure uh lightning happening below you is a pretty humbling thing when when yeah. you know you're high enough that you're in the clouds um where were we i was there but i remember the story i'm blanking on the mountain uh it yeah, probably fried out of me yeah. but uh we we finally made the call to climb in uh to this little small cave and uh just ride it out and that was the closest i've come to to moments of like, I may not make it back down, you know, and then the whole thing just came through as quick as it went. And, uh, um,
0: that was it makes you feel real small. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was, I was fishing in Alaska a couple of years ago with my wife. Um, was not much of a fisherman. She comes sometimes. And, uh, we, there was a specific spot we wanted to get to kind of in the pre-dawn. Um, it was this big shelf, big gravel shelf with a mm-hmm. bunch of spawning salmon and below it, there was a drop and there were, that's hard to estimate thousands of trout and yeah. char that were eating eggs um, and so if you got there, you know, first boat in, you could basically sit there and just fish, you know, catch a fish every cast. Sure. And so we were trying to get there. So we kind of pre on, on a big river called the Kenai in Alaska. Yeah, and um, we came around a bend in a drift boat. And it was us and some other people from the lodge, both two drift boats. And a sow with three cubs was crossing the river. It's a big, broad river, right? And so um, two of the cubs had gotten across the river, and she was one of the cubs was kind of lagging behind her. So we ended up getting between her and the cubs. And it's a big enough river that it wasn't super scary at that point. But the cubs obviously were crying from the other bank. And she was kind of huffing and kind of talking back to them. And so we're kind of floating down between them. And, you know, we're far enough away that it's not super dangerous. But we're staying in the boat, and we get to the point where we want to stay. And so she's kind of agitated at this point because we're between her and the cubs. We get down a little bit below her, and we anchor up where we'd like to fish. And we're in headlights, you know, headlamps at this point. It's kind of pre-dawn light. And we look up, and she charges us from about 100 yards and and stands up, and you can see the water. You're close enough to see the water dripping off of her fur. And my wife's crawling up under the (laughs) gunnel of the boat. She's like, I think I can fit up here. And the guide's on the oars, like, you just pull anchor and keep going down the river. That's your only option, right? And full-on roars, you know, with water dripping off of her on their back two feet. And then drops down and wolfs at us and swims across the river. So that's the closest I've ever had to like a real bear encounter. So I've seen bears and been around them, but not a mad bear. Yep.
0: That's, yeah, that's the
2: real deal. That was um, a good one.
0: <laughs> this is a hard hard question, but for me at least, I don't know what my answer would be. But where um, is your favorite place in the West? Do you have a favorite location? It could be town, mountain, lake, anywhere.
1: I think a place I stumbled through and then keep finding my way back to without maybe even being that intentional about it, is Pinedale, Wyoming. Yeah. You know, it's just, it still feels small. It feels like what it should be. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and ironically, it's probably a lot of times on the drive to Jackson, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is so much bigger and, you know, built up. But uh, Pinedale is just the real deal and the fishing's great there and the access to the winds and, uh, you know, sitting at the brewery at the end of a long day and we've had some great little, you know, places to stay and people are really kind. Um, And I don't think it's totally been overrun you know people are still
0: still pretty happy to see you yeah oh yeah
2: so, that's a great place yeah. yeah yeah I love South Park my family has a cabin up in oh, South really? Park, Colorado yeah yeah I just had some great moments up there and it feels kind of I guess a little bit like you're describing Matt like it just feels kind of desolate compared to the i 70 corridor yeah yeah and you know there's so many great places that you're close to there and the expanse you know have, their cabin's kind of up on the northeastern side of South Park uh-huh. so you're kind of looking out and that expanse is just kind of stunning and Yeah, I think one of my favorite moments from there was just standing in a stream, and it was kind of after, it was a birthday party weekend maybe, so you're kind of thinking, like, I'm getting older, and Mm -hmm. I was standing in the middle of a stream, just, I've been tying a knot, I don't know how long I was tying the knot for, and one of our buddies walked up to me and said, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know, I'm just kind of standing here looking, you know, and I've been there for a while, I think, I wasn't fishing, I was just standing in the river. You know, just kind of appreciating everything, yeah. That was you know.
0: when I first came to Colorado in high school. That was my first taste. We, for some reason, flew into Colorado Springs and then drove over that pass into sure. the South Park. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was my first view of 14,000-foot mountains mm-hmm. and, you know, the big valley. That, that is a special place. Um, I, I still don't know how I would answer that question. I should have figured <laughs> that out. Um, so, last one of these quick questions. um what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And you kind of answered that. Mm-hmm. Any others?
1: You know, it, gosh, I don't even know. I, I've heard so much. A lot of it's about, as I've gotten older, I feel like people that have just told me, you know, slow down. Uh-huh. You know, like if you want to reply to somebody in email, don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, call yeah. them in person. You know, yeah. my dad always used to say, why don't you think before you act? And, you know, so <laughs> I, I don't know, just lots of things about being mindful And then not impulsive. And and I think some of that comes with just growing older, Uh uh, becoming a
2: parent. Um, but it, it's been it's good rings in the back of my head I think that's yeah. great i would say another quote of mine I think as being you know we talk about this sometimes but kind of an old dad which I think is not that uncommon these days but remember my mom told me one time it's impossible to spoil a baby I don't remember that right uh-huh. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so you got a 20 just 21. all love all love yeah. all the time yeah
2: I think we're getting to the cl- point close to the point where you can start spoiling them yeah you're so right, right on the edge that topic. Yeah, I got, I got a two and a half that. year old yeah. and she definitely <laughs> needs some correcting so right. somewhere between right. those two
0: uh-huh. <laughs> um, so last big question um, if you can make a request of the people listening to this podcast and it's just people that love the American West in one way or the other through fishing conservation ranching athletics art whatever um, if you could make a request of those people or give them some words of wisdom what would it be
1: I think uh, you know really reexamining that question of need versus want mm-hmm. um, and when it comes to things like gear I um, you know, I think, think about what we throw away. Mm-hmm. Think about how we churn through things. Think about, you know, the latest, greatest jacket just because a panel is a different color on mm-hmm. it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and really embrace and, and, and live that ethos of like, I'm going to wear this jacket until it falls off me. I'm going to wear these waders until they have seven patches in them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to buy this fly rod because it's, re- it's going to be something I hand to my son, not sure. because it's something I'm going to, you know, flip out in two years. So yeah. I think it this journey has really made me re-examine a lot of, of, you know, consumerism and and need versus want. And so I think just re-examining that, um, you know, I think the West is going to, you know, it faces a lot of resource challenges Mm -hmm. and and, uh, overgrowth and expansion. And I think, you know, just thinking about what what we have and what we need is important.
2: Yeah, I'd say there's nothing cooler than something that's been honestly used. I agree. right I mean, I think we're all kind of coming a lot of us are coming back to that idea sure. you know, and i would I would just add to that idea too, I think you know take the time to find your local makers, Mm -hmm. you know, take the time. There's nothing more satisfying than buying something for me that's made in Bozeman, Montana, because that's where I live, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that idea of kind of creating community and and creating community, not only by the people, you know, and the people you interact with, but the people that you buy your stuff from um, is such a cool idea now. And I think, you know, we talk about development in the West and all those things. And and I think community building starts with sourcing Mm -hmm. the things for your life there. You know, and, and I just urge people to seat that stuff out because there are so many great heritage craftsmen all over the, the United States that are making wallets and pants and boots and you know, sure. hats and fly rods. So,
1: so I had, I had a question for you in the quick fire round. As, oh yeah. As you've met all these people, have you found a common thread? Like when you think about people that are kind of, in in your words, shaping the modern West. Yeah. Have you found a common thread or something that you think kind of links those influencers together?
0: I was thinking about that, and I. You know, everybody's doing so many different things. I was, I was, I was actually thinking about this maybe last week, and I was thinking that so many of these people that are that I've interviewed, they they're not from here. A lot of them are not from here. Even you know, some like the guy Jim Howell, he's this world famous rancher, and he's kind of created this whole way of grazing that fights global warming. It's good for the grasslands, but he was born in Anaheim, California. And then I interviewed a a artist who's one of the up and coming Western artists, Mark Majuri. He's from France. He was in a rock band before, a French rock band, before he started painting. And um, so it was all these interesting people. And I think, I was thinking, and I feel like everybody I've talked to fits in this, is that in order to, to come to the West and be accepted and contribute, you need to be, the, the, the traits that stick out are you need to be humble and you need to be hardworking And I was thinking about that when we were talking, actually, because I feel like that's the same approach you guys have taken. So I feel like that's starting to be the theme, is that you can't come out here acting like you know everything and you're some loudmouth who's going to, you know, knows every bit and you don't need any help. And you need to come in with a humble attitude and you need to be willing to work extremely hard. If you think about the stereotypical rancher who's been out here since the 1850s or whatever, 1870s, that's you know they're soft-spoken and they're they kind of watch people and they you know they're real quick to call out uh, somebody who's full of bs Mm -hmm. and um i think the thing that if you think about what those guys respect more times than not it's somebody who's willing to work hard and willing to be humble and learn and um that seems to be the common thread and i can't think of of anybody i've talked to who doesn't really fit in that Mm -hmm. um You know, that's as far as mindsets. I feel like people, mindsets and interest. It's like we were talking about before we started recording. Everybody's got different ideas about some political things or whatever. But there is, if you think about concentric circles, there is this overlap that a love for the landscape and a respect for conservation. And uh, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, I've interviewed people on both sides. They all have in common that they they love the landscape out here and they love the communities and they want to see it not taken advantage of. Um, and so I don't know if that answers it. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, I didn't know I was going to get interviewed. Uh, so, how can people find more about you guys online? Where should they look?
1: Yeah, our our website's uh, TomMorganRodSmiths.com. dot com. Yep. Um, we have an Instagram at tommorganrodsmiths. Yep. Um, we're pretty new to all this this tech yeah. stuff too, yeah. so we're poking around somewhere. It. I think. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know about yeah. that. Okay. I'll, be, I'll, I'll <laughs> dig you know, it up. <laughs> better, <laughs> better yet, just give us a call. Yeah. yeah come come by the shop. Yeah, come talk to us. Come the shop.
0: Yeah. I'll be up there. Well, thank y'all so much. Yeah, definitely.